0: The reading of the scriptures from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 to 9. So uh, hear the word of the Lord and let us hear in faith and with joy uh, for God's revelation to us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken away by distress and judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth.
1: Our text this morning uh, quite obviously deals with uh, the suffering of uh, our Savior and the ransom he paid uh, upon the cross, but it also was much more far-reaching than that. Because at some point, uh, it is a suffering that includes all of our lives, life in the church, life in the faith. Uh, it's a uh, gory affair to ponder uh, the death of our Savior upon the cross, but again, at some point, it encompasses the entire church. Uh, and that is our text this morning. As you know, this is the fourth uh, and final servant song. Uh, speaking to the divine agent who will affect restoration and creation. Uh, New Testament authors, uh, again, I say this repeatedly, but it's important to understand that divergent views on the servant songs in terms of their identity, uh, it is uh, not divergent when you come to the New Testament. The apostles, New Testament affirm that Christ is identified here. Uh, And so let's begin with Christ. Uh, The suffering is is clear in the text. He was oppressed and afflicted. The first word speaks to violent pressure, as if uh, our Savior uh, was in a vice uh, with ever-increasing pressure being applied in the turning of the screw to oppress our Savior. Uh, The second, of course, he was afflicted, speaks to punishment and pain. It's interesting that both of these words were used of Israel in Egypt. And I think that is a measure by design because in my own understanding of the scriptures, uh, Christ is the true Israel uh, and uh, he's going to suffer. Uh, The divergence is is that the nation of Israel in Egypt cried out. And of course, God heard their cry. But Christ did not open his mouth. He was silent. He gave no cry. Uh, He does not call for help uh, because of what he is about to accomplish. Uh, In other words, he must take the suffering uh, to its end uh, and not be helped uh, to pay the price that his people uh, deserve to pay. So he offers no defense, no protest. The innocent one offering no protest for what he is undergoing. And so again, the text reads, he did not open his mouth. The silence, I think, attests to his voluntary submission. All of us, of course, in a measure suffer in life. We get the flu, we get sick, we go to the doctor. The older you get, the more you go. Uh, But none of us goes in perfect innocence. We are part of the fall. Our Savior offers no protest, and yet he's totally, absolutely innocent in his perfections. Uh, it's more than voluntary submission. It's uh, He's winning his people. A greater cause is before him. And so he offers no defense because of that cause. The majesty of the Son of God uh, does not resist, uh, even though he is, is innocent. Uh, totally uh, uncharacteristic of fallen man. Uh, I've often heard people say that in prison, everyone's innocent. I don't know. Uh, haven't been there uh, as of late, but uh, again, our Savior, in prison, but we know from Scripture, totally innocent. Uh, The line uh, repeated uh, at the end of the verse, uh, verse 7, so he did not open uh, his mouth, uh, forms a a figure of speech. The technical name for it is, of course, inclusio, uh, but, but more than the technical name, And more than a figure of speech, it drives us to a truth to look at what stands before the two bookends. And that is like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears. Again, it speaks to substitution, a constituent part of the Christian faith. Uh, He was our substitute. We owed. We owed everything. He paid, and he paid it all. Uh, and in the paying of it all, he secures the blessings uh, that accrue to us as his people. Uh, the essential truth that he took our place is seen in the two similes, like a lamb to slaughter and a sheep before his shears. The point is his silence, uh, but it's much more in the sense that the entire sacrificial system of the book of the Leviticus collapses and is finished in Christ, the Lamb of God. Just one quick uh, text to establish this point. Uh, Leviticus chapter 5, in the sixth verse. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, as a sin offering. Christ becomes that lamb upon the cross and finishes the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It ends with him. It all points to him and he finishes it all. Uh, New Testament authors of course allude to this reality uh, in our Lord's ecclesiastical and civil trials. Uh, What occurs in those trials? They charge him and he says not a word. Uh, Let's look at Matthew chapter 26, uh, verses 62, 63. Our Lord is at an ecclesiastical trial. He is being charged uh, with repeated charges. And we read in Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus... Kept silent. It is a reminder that our Lord is fulfilling the servant song of the prophet Isaiah. He is the servant, the last great provision of God dealing with our guilt, paying the penalty. The civil trial, the same thing occurs. Mark chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. And Pilate was questioning him, saying, Do you make no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was astonished in amazement because he knew he was innocent, but he offers no defense. The sacrificial aspect is also, as you might well imagine, alluded to repeatedly in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the 7th verse, is I think one echo of this text. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover. Again, sacrificed for us. The Passover. Uh, a lamb is slaughtered. Blood is applied. The angel of death goes to the household. If there is blood, he passes over the household. If there is not, he affects death, that Christ is our Passover. Uh, His blood avails so that the angel of death will never knock on our door. I love the text from the book of the Revelation. Over those who belong to Christ, the second death has no power. Uh, It, it of course, in a very distant sense, uh, breaks upon the great promise of the entirety of the Christian faith uh, that we will be raised the second coming, and we shall be changed, uh, that even the grave won't hold us, but more importantly, that being in Christ, the second death, the finality of death and eternal punishment will pass us by. Why? Because Christ is our Passover, and he has been sacrificed for us. It's a great, I think, invitation of the gospel. If there is no blood upon uh, your life, the blood of the Lamb, then again... Uh, It's the reminder that the angel of death will eventually run you to ground and own you forever and will never let you go. But coming to Christ, we are set free, and we are free in him indeed. It may be that uh, John the Apostle alludes uh, to the sermon song in Revelation chapter 5, in verse 9, where there there is a heavenly choir, and they sing about Christ that he was slain. And he purchased for God his church. He was slain, and the act of the cross and the act of the crucifixion was an act of purchase in which he lays down the price of the infinite perfections of his life to buy his people forever and to own them. Uh, We know in subsequent time he dispatches his spirit to effect application, but nonetheless, it was an actual purchase price. To stave off the wrath of God. John, of course, is clear that the act was vicarious. Uh, we owed. He paid what we owed, uh, even though we were guilty and he was innocent. The author of the book of Hebrews has, I think, uh, some of the best commentary uh, on all that these mean, all that this means, Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, In the 14th verse, speaking of all that Christ did, much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. All of humanity guilty with a guilty conscience because of the death of Christ is purged. We can have a clean conscience because of the death of Christ. Not because of our works, but because of his work. uh, The shedding of his blood. Uh, Even more so, Hebrews chapter 10, in the 10th verse. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. A sacrifice so perfect, it is only offered once. So if you think of the history of Israel and the entirety of the sacrificial System, the blood of the bulls and the goats and the doves and on and on and on, it all collapses upon the one in the infinite perfections of Christ, the righteous one, uh, whose life is efficient to purchase his people forever and never let them go. Again, the great act of the Passover, that the angel of death will someday come, but when it sees on our life uh, the blood of the Lamb of God, it moves on importance of the gospel to come to faith in Christ Uh, because absent him uh, you will lose everything throughout all of eternity and absent him all is lost everything is lost Uh, great reminder that the sacrificial system of the old covenant repeated continually year after year is now finished stops at the cross because of the majesty of the Son of God. Lest the trial, our Savior's suffering, but it goes on beyond the trial uh, to speak uh, to death. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Uh, The text presupposes a legal event of incredible injustice, We know from the New Testament that it is a religious trial. They manufactured charges against him. They brought false witnesses, even though their own law condemned false witnesses. They brought them nonetheless because they hated him more than they loved their own law. In other words, they would stop at nothing. Their rage was unchecked and unbounded. The the text reads, he was taken away. But we should add, he was taken away to die. A cruel and unusual death and punishment. The Greek translation of the Old Testament reads, in the humiliation, he was led unto death. That here the God-man, totally innocent, sets aside all that he was in terms of position to die upon a Roman cross. Isaiah goes on to write that he was cut off from life Uh, The tragedy of uh, the event is compounded, as the text reads, that no one considered it. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? They should have. They should have known. They were the keepers of the Old Testament. They were the readers of the servant songs from the prophet Isaiah, but they gave no consideration Uh, to the great reality that in their midst was the servant son of whom the prophet spoke and foretold. They gave it no thought. They took him to the cross nonetheless. Uh, But it's similar today. Few give thought to the immense reality that God sent his son to die for the sins of sinners. Few give thought. Few really care as if it means nothing that God opened heaven and sent eternal love in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, to suffer grave injustice for which he was innocent to purchase his people. It's as if, who cares? Who cares? That's the point of the text. Who considered it when they should have? And God did it, Isaiah says, for the transgression of my people. No concern for God's law or for care when it is broken, but God fixes it for His people by striking the servant. It's true, of course, that there were human agents that were nailing Him to the cross. Human agents that were spearing Him, but behind it all, God was striking His Son to effect payment for the transgressions of his people. While, of course, the text here is silent, uh, the theological implication is the satisfaction of wrath, that he actually was procuring his people from the wages of sin. It's a point of the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Think of it, no condemnation, none whatsoever. The legal system has been satisfied in the gift of the Son. I think it's so remarkable that we live in a time in a country where seemingly people are guilty about everything. The church, guilt has been paid, satisfied. And therefore, this overhang of condemnation, not just condemnation, but eternal condemnation and punishment is vacated because of the gift of the Son of God for the people of God. Incredible transaction. Love unbounded, wrath satisfied. The penalty is paid in the death of the servant. It's the reality, of course, uh, again, theological extrapolation uh, of a definite atonement or a particular redemption. He did it for his people for all those who will come to believe in him and have faith in him and the work that he did upon the cross to pay the penalty that they deserve to pay. In this language, of course, we have great uh, religious instruction. Uh, morality is part of the Christian faith, but it is much more than reality that the heart of it all is that God provided a substitute for our sin and our guilt, and he paid the price and the gift of his son. I think in many tragic ways in our own age, the American church is becoming just another religion, another expression of morality. And it is forgotten that God provided the greatest of all gifts to pay in the greatest of all prices for the greatest of all eternal blessings in the gift of his son for his people. So that the angel of death, the angel who would bring condemnation and wrath, will pass over us and never, ever touch us. The greatest event of eternal security that could ever be imagined in the gift of the Son. Again, New Testament authors have the fulfillment of this text in Christ. Let's look at uh, a couple of proofs uh, to that end. The book of Acts Acts chapter 8, a court official of Ethiopia is reading the fourth servant song of the prophet Isaiah and he doesn't understand it. Acts chapter 8, verses 32 and 33. Philip comes upon the man and he's reading Isaiah. What is he reading? Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth? The eunuch turns to Philip and says, To whom is the prophet referring? Look at verse 35. And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. The point of the text is the servant song is fulfilled in Christ. He was the Lamb of God. He was the provision of God. He paid the price even though we owed it. He took it upon himself and suffered eternal wrath as an eternal person to vacate our liability. Marvelous love. Who can imagine such love? they respecting the entirety of our lives, past, present, and future. The cross cries out to us, paid in full. No further payment to be exacted. It's the most marvelous expression of Christian theology. It makes our faith totally different from all of the religions of the world because we are guilty, but God paid the price in his son. The provision. Of the Savior upon the cross. Let's look at the text, uh, respecting the grave. He was buried, Isaiah says, uh, with the wicked. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9. His grave was assigned to be with the wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death. Uh, again, there is no question here that the New Testament authors see in the events surrounding the death of Christ that there is a fulfillment of this text. That again, Isaiah is pointing to Christ. And so Matthew chapter 7, 27, uh, Christ is crucified with two thieves, wicked men who deserve to die, punishment being afflicted upon them uh, because of who they were and what they had been doing. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, comes, petitions Pilate for the body of Christ, and Pilate releases him, and Joseph buries him in his own tomb. Uh, So a rich man makes provision for the riches of the God-man in the extremity of his poverty that gave his life a ransom, the one for the many. And the the section of the text closes uh, with the injustice of it all. Although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Again, the Greek translation has lawlessness. Uh, But Christ was not what we were. The phrase, no deceit in his mouth, means that Christ in his life was a faithful witness. He had no hidden agenda. He was no Palestinian, Palestinian politician trying to get something. He had no deceit. He spoke the truth but that he came to purchase his church to set them free from wrath forever and ever. It was the cause of his trial, however. It was full of deceit and deception and lies, not with respect to him. The key is, I think, that he would not compromise his witness. If you think about your own reading of the Gospels throughout uh, his earthly ministry, uh, religious leaders of uh, Israel were trying to compromise him, uh, trying to get him to uh, give up stop his preaching, Uh, he he would not compromise. It's remarkable to understand that because uh, our lives and our culture is filled with compromise. But when you come to the cross and the trial and the gift of the Son, it's totally vacated. It is totally absent. There was no deceit. You and I live in a world that is filled with deception. Not so the God-man. There was no deceit, uh, gave his life nonetheless and cost him. This is something of the reality of the attestation of the Apostle John uh, when he writes the identity of Christ in the first chapter of the book of the Revelation. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, speaking to his resurrection. But I, I, I remind you of uh, what came first, the faithful witness witness. He went to the end. He would not compromise. And thus he was a faithful witness. And it cost him to buy us, to buy his church, to gather his people. We, we, we transition now from the sacrifice paid by Christ Uh, to another form of sacrifice. It's uh, non-meritorious, non-vicarious, but sacrifice nonetheless. And that is the sufferings of the church. Uh, Because the authors of the New Testament take this servant's song and not only apply it to Christ, uh, they apply it to the church. Uh, Remarkable attestation of contemporary Christianity in our culture. Uh, Well, you come to Christ and everything's going to turn rosy for you. Everything's going to work out well. Christ will fix everything in your life. He will get you a better this and a better that, and on and on and on we preach sometimes. I'm not suggesting that good things don't happen to Christians by the providence of a good God. Uh, But just the reminder that in our identification with Christ as he suffered, in a non-vicarious, non-meritorious way, we will too. It is a constituent part of the Christian faith that the church suffers attesting to their love for their Savior who suffered for them. Let's look at an Old Testament illustration of this One prophet removed from Isaiah, Prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 11 and verse 19. But I was like a gentle lamb led to slaughter. And I did not know that they had devised plots against me, saying, "Let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living." Again, Jeremiah is in sync with Isaiah; the one speaks to the servant's son, but Jeremiah lives it out in his own life, in the preaching ministry of the word of God, in bringing to the people truth. He's going to suffer. We witness of Christ, it costs us. This language, again, is picked up, as I have suggested, by New Testament authors who apply it not just to Christ, but to the church. Romans chapter 8, well known passage. It speaks of the path of our exodus to heaven. It is not without cost. And so we read the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8 and verse 36. Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The Apostle Paul is applying the prophecy of the servant son to the church because in our identification with Christ and the cross, Uh, We come into suffering as well. Again, I remind you, it's uh, not very not vicarious, it's not substitutionary, uh, it is uh, not meritorious. But when we identify with him, the sufferings of Christ continue. And that is the life of the church to identify with Christ. It's in a clear allusion to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7. Uh, Another illustration of this is uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example of how to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, was any deceit found in his mouth. And while he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The context of uh, Peter is the uh, slaves who are being called upon to suffer unjustly, yet still act righteously based upon the example of Jesus. That what he did in unjust suffering, we do as well. Just simply the reminder that the majesty of the cross continues in the life of the church because of what it means and the moment you identify yourself with Christ you become the object of hatred you'll be pilloried you'll be reviled you you will in some occasions uh, be asked to give your life uh, because of your identity with Christ uh, remember uh, past uh, summer uh, my wife and I had the privilege of uh, going to Europe. And the first, first part of our trip was uh, uh, being led by uh, a, a Jew who would take us to synagogues and uh, speak to us about the incredible, intense, unjust suffering for people uh, under Nazi Germany. I always hear the number 6 million. It's a staggering number. You can barely imagine it. It's so staggering. Uh, I've read the history books. I've looked at the pictures. I've seen the movies, the accounts. Incredible evil. 6 million. But did you know that in the 20th century, over 45 million Christians have died because of their faith? 45 million. 45 million. I had to remind my tour guide, six million is a terrible number. I just reminded her that 45 million Christians have given their life in the 20th century for the causes of Christ and what the cross means to the Christian. We are identified with our Savior because he suffered, we will too. You prosper the gospel as a faithful witness. I promise you, you'll come into suffering. It's not vicarious. It's not meritorious. It purchases nothing, but it cements your love for the Savior in light of his love for you. And by the way, that number of Christian martyrs is increasing every year. Who knows what the 21st century will bring? I mean, There's no promise in America that our legal system will stand. The hatred for the cross is violent and cruel. But it is nonetheless what we carry and bear uh, as affection for our Savior because of the eternality of its love for us in buying us as the God-man. Uh, just simply part of the faith. We should come to expect it. Uh, and we... we uh, should not shy away from it, uh, lest we degrade what the cross means in our own lives. Uh, that what Jesus did in unjust suffering, we sometimes are called to as well. That's the point of which Peter is writing to the uh, slaves in his first epistle, that they can suffer unjustly because of the unjust suffering of their Savior. Our good friend, Steve Parr, told me the story, 1995. Uh, Steve worked for an internationally renowned investment banking firm. He applied to go on vacation. I suspect on occasion you ask your (laughs) employer if you can uh, uh, take vacation. So he applies to go on vacation. Not a very unusual act, I submit to you. Uh, goes on vacation. Uh, his uh, boss said, well, Steve, where are you going? I'm going to Russia. On a gospel ministry. Uh, what Steve knew is that his uh, employer was not a friend of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tried to talk him out of it. Uh, I don't remember all of the details, but I think even to the extent that, look, I'll pay your vacation. Why don't you go to... I don't know, Las Vegas, Europe. I'll pay the entire bill, but don't, don't go on Christian missionary work. Now, mind you, when you go on vacation, I think you can do as you wish to do. Steve went, and shortly after he returned from vacation, he got a call from his boss saying, clean out your office. You know, tell it not in Gath, say it not in Ashkelon, but you pay a price sometimes for being straight up and honest about what you're doing, about who you serve in the greater calling of the gospel. Sometimes there is an incredible price to pay. We pay it because of the price that was paid for us in the provision of the God-man through God the Father to God the Son. Another illustration of this, uh, book of the Revelation, chapter 14. Allusion, I think, to Isaiah chapter 53, Revelation chapter 14, verses 3 and 5, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one can learn the song except the 144,000 who have been purchased from the earth. And These are the ones who have not been defiled with women for their celibates. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth, and they are blameless. You can see the allusion there quite radically in that last verse. There was no deceit found in their mouths, for they are blameless. Uh, Notice a very important figure of speech here that uh, is picked up in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse verse 7. If you look at verse 3, purchased from the earth, the last phrase. And then verse 4 they have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God. Again, the key is the middle. Who cares about the technical name of the figure of speech? But the middle were driven there. Uh, here there's a metaphor of celibacy uh, that focuses on the fact that these who belong to Christ will not compromise their faith. Oftentimes, Scripture defines religious compromise in terms of this terrible metaphor of harlotry. You play one false and you do a terrible wrong. Uh, But these men who belong to Christ who have been purchased, purchased by God from the gift of the Son, uh, they will not compromise. They are faithful. The point of the reality is the continuing fulfillment of the servant song in the life of the church. Now, I would submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that if you give any thought or time or occasion whatsoever to our culture, you watch any television, go to any movie, read any magazine, everywhere, compromise is rampant. It's simply part of our culture as if it has become a constituent part of who we are, that we compromise everything. Not so the church. God purchased us. And we remain true to our faith and our testimony of Jesus, what he did for us. It owns us. It will not let us go. It encompasses thought, word, and deed of our lives over time and in degree, to be sure. It's a majesty of what Christ did that encompasses all that we are, so that in witness, we give uncompromising testimony that we belong to the cross and all that it means. The majesty. Oftentimes, Scripture defines compromise with, with language like harlotry. But here, the, the church is is spoken of again. The book of the Revelation. Uh, they have not been defiled, for they are celibates. They have remained true to their calling. You know, if you're like me, you just get sick of the compromise, particularly in the political realm. Let's just remember that our witness to Christ, we're not to compromise. We're to be true to the end in light of the fact that he was true to purchase us. It's also a reminder, I think, of another reality. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, as you know, Israel is referred to as a virgin, uh, meaning that now in the church, we are the true Israel. We have an uncompromising faith to Jesus Christ. An event that the world considers utterly barbaric. We hold dear Because there upon the cross, he died for us to pay the penalty totally for our sin and to vacate liability totally and eternally. An act of love so great that we return that love in faithful witness. Uh, It's exactly what is captured for us in the language that John gives to us that we should give attention to, that we follow the lamb wherever he goes. He goes to truth, and sometimes he leads us in the way of suffering, that our identification is made all the more real. And so it is, and the martyrdom of the Christian church, the incredible shedding of the blood that the world gives no attention to whatsoever. It does not even care that 45 million people died innocently in the 20th century. And who knows what this century holds for the church of Jesus Christ. One thing we do know is what it means to be a faithful witness. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13 is an allusion to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Jesus Christ was the faithful witness. And so we read in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. It's an inscription that applies to the church because of the cross. To be faithful witnesses, as Christ was faithful to the calling that God gave to him uh, to buy His people. And so, indeed, we follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Pardon me, wherever He goes. It's one of the reasons we give attention to the preaching of the Word to. Uh, provoke us to call upon the Spirit of God to give us courage, that we would be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, to give a true witness about the nature of our faith. Uh, It's a reminder that we are to identify with Christ in message and in faithfulness, even to the point of death, even to the point of death. And so it is that this great servant song speaks of the violent suffering of our Savior upon the cross, uh, breaks upon the church, and our willingness to bear that faithful testimony and to even suffer violence is a testimony that as the world hated him, it continues to hate his people who proclaim the greatness of his name. Uh, May it be so in our own lives. May it be so in the missionaries that we support that carry the message to distant lands who have no legal system like ours. But once again, there is no final guarantee that ours will stand perpetually. But let this stand. Christ, the Lamb of God, paid our penalty. And may we hold his witness dear even to the point of suffering for the greatness of his name. That Christ loved us in sacrifice, and we are loyal to him in return by sacrifice. I was reading uh, recently a uh, Puritan devotional, reminded me of the words of Isaiah, Revelation 14, 1 Peter chapter 2, Acts chapter 8. That no one ever sneaks into heaven without a cross, without a cross. May God bless our ministry in the cross.